welcome to Intermittent Signal from David A. Westbrook. This is episode one, Points of Departure. The music is written, played, and produced by Vincent Parlato. I plan on doing various things on Intermittent Signal, including more or less formal essays, conversations with friends about their work, maybe even some academic talks. But I want to start with something very different. Points of Departure is the first chapter of a strange and perhaps unpublishable book, Smith Lake. It's about, well, you'll see, it's not that easy to be about something, which seems right for episode one of a podcast called Intermittent Signal. Chancy, incomplete, uncertain, and suggestive. I hope you enjoy it. Chapter one, point of departure. From my early childhood, I remember the fog on the lake before the family woke. Even the fog stands for that which cannot be well remembered. On what must have been summer mornings, judging from the weather and my bare feet, which would comport with the academic calendar of my mother. Swirling damp above the water, usually still and bottled green, and meanwhile soaking the wood of the dock, dark and starting to rot. That was back when docks were fixed in the water on pilings, not aluminum frames floating on something like styrofoam like they are now. Then, as now, the power company allowed the lake to rise to contain the spring rains or drained what was in their view their impoundment, a giant battery, to fuel the air conditioners in Birmingham or whatever, wherever. So the dock might be flooded in the spring or high and dry in August, certainly later. I caught my first fish off that dock early on a summer evening after a rain. More strongly, however, I remember the dock as I went down to fish in those early mornings with nobody else awake yet and the water covered by a few feet of fog. I'd walk out of the house through the porch, careful not to let the screen door slam, cross the slate terrace and turn hard right at the yellow plum tree from which Mama made rarely delicious preserves, down the cracked steps stone walkway and at the shore step onto the dock, damply soft on my bare feet except where the tenpenny nails, how do I know this, already protruded. I went fishing for the brim, mostly, that spawned and swirled among and around the pilings. Bluegills were occasional, catfish more so. Bass were plentiful to serious fishermen, but almost never bit the balls I made out of store-bought white bread or the worms I sometimes used as bait. Gar had been sighted, but what I used to see all the time were turtles and beavers and snakes. Somewhat idly, I used to worry that a cottonmouth would take my bait. My paternal grandmother, grandmama in my childish spelling, had told me a story about a boy who baited his hooks with baby cottonmouths, believing they were worms. And as it was impaled, each one of those baby snakes bit the boy until the boy died. When I finally returned to the lake, decades and maybe even two generations later, I could not remember the last time I had been to the lake, or how old I was then. Perhaps it was for a funeral. I think I was too young to go to Mammy's, Grandmama's mother, or Mother Westbrook's, Granddaddy's mother. So maybe it was Vicky, my grandmother's sister. She used to live with Mammy in the little house in Jasper. Mother Westbrook lived across the street with her son Emmett. I remember Uncle Perry, Papa's brother, taking me to Alabama for some such event, long after the lake house had been sold, telling me when I wanted to go swimming in the hotel pool that we were not there for fun. I also remember Mammy's face powdered in her casket, but maybe that was a dream or just my imagination of a funeral I did not in fact attend, even though one is supposed to remember that sort of thing. I could, of course, ask surviving family members if they remembered whether or not I was there and find out, perhaps, but having to be more or less reliably told that one really remembers, or for that matter, does not actually remember, a moment that is supposed to be indelible sort of restates the problem, doesn't it? One of my most loyal readers said that this book could use a family tree. 
He is, of course, right, but for a different book. Family tree would impose a uniform clarity on matters, a clarity that I did not know then and do not now. We must all cope with fog, and that is the point here. So it would have to be an impressionistic family tree, and what good would that be? Hearing of my project, another relative from another side of the family gave me a genealogical chart, tree is far too casual, composed by a yet more distant relative stretching back into the early 19th century in the settlement of Alabama by Europeans, populated by names of people of whom I had never heard, their properties, spouses, and children, births and deaths meticulously recorded, fascinating and spooky, but not at issue. A little research of the sort one nowadays does on phones yields the following points widely re recognized as facts. Smith Lake, more formally called Lewis Smith Lake, I've never heard anyone use this name, was formed in Alabama power with the backing of the state in its eminent domain, Dam the Sipsy Fork of the Black Warrior River. My notes, perhaps from a plaque at the dam, are at variance with Wikipedia, which has a stub that needs improvement. I could do research, but again, why? Construction began in 1957, and the dam entered service, as it were, in 1961. It is one of the largest earthen dams in the eastern United States. Unless the Lewis Smith Dam was completed in 1964, the year I was conceived if they haven't lied about my birthday. It is also said that at the time it was built, the dam was one of the largest earthen dams in the world. This monument is named for, perhaps by, Lewis Martin Smith, who led Alabama power from 1951 until 1957. On a map, the flooded valleys combined to look like a blue spider squashed by the heel of God in the hilly countries northwest of Birmingham and southeast of Memphis. Whether or not he was the Viceroy of God, Lewis Martin has quite a monument. Smith Lake has the longest shoreline of any lake in Alabama. It is also the coldest and deepest lake in the state, the owner of the B&B &B where I recently stayed told me. On account of the relatively cold water, there are no alligators, which mattered to her because she grew up in southern Mississippi, where alligators abound and bedevil swimmers. Smith Lake is also among the clearest lakes in the entire United States and perhaps the clearest impoundment. If you open your eyes while swimming in the sun, the water is a beautiful green gold and you can see fish moving away from you in the distance, actually only a few feet away. This was true when I was a child, though then imperiled by nearby strip mines, which was one reason our family left. I do not know if water clarity deteriorated and if so, by how much. Today, however, the mines are closed and on my return, the water was clear and green and from inside a little lighter than bottled glass and glowing. Why we left and why I returned to Smith Lake after so many years is almost as obscure as Lewis Martin, though there is much that perhaps ought to be said. Perhaps ought should be stressed because it is not clear how any of this matters, if at all. It might matter, hence this reverie, but I waited well over a generation to bother returning. And if what I recently learned there does matter, it is not clear how. There was no great purpose served by my return, at least none known to me. No hope for a childhood home. Lost, oh lost, to be recovered if only for an imaginative instant. Not even nostalgia to be indulged, much less deep family or personal secrets to be solved or otherwise confronted and laid to rest. What intimacies, failings, loves, and indeed secrets there almost certainly are, are in the lives of most families, will remain such for all I have to say on the matter apart from accidental indiscretions, suggestions unavoided. In fact, at least as best as I could make out even at the time and certainly now, there was nothing much at all to be gained by making the trip to Smith Lake, though I had time and money, one must be grateful, to indulge this vague if long-held desire, and so why not? 
A part of me wants to frame this little adventure as Proust meets Faulkner and they take a fast car into the heart of darkness. What my kind of American sees is an often evil but richly feck in the darkness, the American South, the home of racism and rock and roll. But that is more than a little pretentious. Even confessing this to you is pretentious, but I love the image, and less cheerily, it is embarrassingly important to me to seem intelligent in your eyes. In fact, I've only read some Faulkner a long time ago, and little if no Proust, though of course I know the story of the Madelines. Orange rolls from Coleman are the Madelines in that part of Alabama, and Remembrance. Smith Lake is about remembrance, although less so than I initially thought. So Proust seems relevant, and I'm tempted to steal some of his cultural authority from my own project, which is an artistically craven impulse. This sort of thing all too easily becomes a bad habit. Being read generally, if not in this instance, is one of the ways I maintain my position in society, one of the things that pays for the travel and other amenities. Such bad habits, however, presume a literary culture in which reading Proust is respected, actually worth doing or faking if needs be, in the way class is always worth faking. But I suspect that world, which has treated me well, is fading. So perhaps this particular fault of mine will become rare, like a passion for snuff. No doubt, however, intellectual pretension will not go away, but will simply adopt new forms, become less literary and more something else. My trip was rather ordinary, at least by contemporary standards of travel writing, with its breathless avocations of the perfect place at the perfect moment, the ten best of this or that. Smith Lake is a fine lake, but similar impoundments are scattered across the south. There is even another Smith Lake, small and privately held, near Florence, Alabama. Inevitably, for one who notices anyway, some things encountered on my trip were appreciated for their beauty or taste or feel on the skin and what have you, and many things were experienced. But the beauties were much like others seen elsewhere, and nothing particularly important to anybody, including me, was learned. Just not much happened on my trip. Modest disappointments were expected and indeed found. I guess I didn't get very far upriver, surely nowhere near the heart of darkness. A fight or a messily erotic affair with a local woman, preferably of another race and class. Or better still, an affair with a man, perhaps a lost black artist, though I'm unfortunately white and straight would have improved the story, but nothing very dramatic or salacious happened to me. I didn't even see the inside of a strip club, not that I'm above that sort of thing. Nor did I go out of my way to engender a conventional, much less a transgressive narrative. If this were a painting, it would be a rather washed-out watercolor, musingly done by an old man on a rainy summer afternoon, on cheap paper, no doubt to be discarded. Those things said, en route back from Siena, the Swedes with whom I'm engaged are obsessed with Italy, Somewhere between Paris and Detroit, it seemed time to start with the writing, for whatever this reverie may turn out to be worth to somebody, or not. I worked on this text for years after returning to Smith Lake, a trip taken after 9-11, indeed after the global financial crisis and the ensuing Great Recession, finishing up with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, years of wealth, movement, and an inchoate sense of vulnerability, of dangers unforeseen until articulated by the event. Everything was connected. Everything was at risk. And the longer I wrote, the more the shape of the text shifted under the pressure of writing itself. As memories, thoughts, dreams more or less waking, hopes, fears interpenetrated one another, the tense became uncertain. From quarantine, I wonder whether this pandemic will put an end to the sort of globalization that busied me in those days and that frames my trip to Smith Lake. At the very least, we are, as usual, watching the process of things including many things that concern me here, becoming something akin yet substantially different. History holds surprises. 
In due course, we shall come to know the extent of historical change, but this already seems a better moment than most to have done to abandon this poem. The drive itself began early on a cool morning at the end of summer. After a late night rain, the lawns of Lawrence, Kansas were gleaming, and I felt the special lightness of heart that comes when setting out on a long road trip. It is so wonderful to know what is to be done, and better still, to know all that has to be done. Driving is so fully absorbing that one is excused, even by oneself, from other tasks. No doubt, autonomous driving cars soon will take this haven from us. But for now, a long road still provides temporary absolution, combined with a bit of anticipation, even adventure. What will we see along the way, over the next hill? For a few hours in a great car, it almost all makes sense. A trip like this should not be started by hacking eastward towards Kansas City with the commuters, so I began by disobeying the navigation system, we call her Ursula and she has little sense of aesthetics, and headed out of my neighborhood with its fine landscaping and historically implausible comfort, reached the highway and drove due south, one way to Houston, I darkly thought, until the sprawl of Kansas City was far behind, and then I turned the little black BMW left, a straight shot on beautiful, mostly two-lane highway across the green farmland of eastern Kansas reclining like an odalisk. Heading towards Missouri, agriculture cut to the great eastern forest that stretches all the way to the Atlantic, and on this fine morning that shore over a thousand miles away seemed an easy and worthy destination, though I had other plans. I let the car run, within reason, and even took the odd detour through little roads winding in cornfields with blind corners, loading up the Pirellis and feeling the turbo rock the car away from the apex. In south-central Missouri, I caught up with the rain that had soaked Lawrence the night before, and even with the excellent all-wheel drive, I had to slow considerably as I entered the low-density clutter of rolling green Missouri, with its outlet malls and the usual chain restaurants. Road work, rain, and trucks added up to traffic, and suddenly to my left, a milf appeared in a rain slicker, judging by her display of naked leg, maybe not much else, walking along the Jersey barrier, her hip inches from traffic, more than the erotic hallucination so common on road trips. Maybe she had a fight with a motorcycle rider waiting out the rain under the next bridge, but about what? There was no easy way to go back, and I thought if she wanted help, all she had to do was raise her hand, and surely a state trooper has noticed or somebody has called in the crazy woman walking along the Jersey barrier in the rain. I mused, did nothing, the rain cleared, and the car plunged down toward the twisties of the Ozarks in Arkansas beyond like a snake on a mission. Many of my earliest memories are at the lake, and if I think about it, even for a moment, old memories, fragmentary yet connected, come back. An odd but good phrase, come back. When I first started thinking about memory in this piece, I thought I had not been there since I was six or seven, maybe. But just now, as I write, I remember our old English sheepdog, our first dog, Annie. She was concerned when the children swam, and she would bark and then swim out and herd them back. My youngest brother, wearing a life vest, was dragged out of the water against his will. Annie was a sweet and wonderful dog, fiercely protective and very strong. Protecting the same brother, Annie got bitten by a copperhead and nearly died. But she was a pet store dog and with blood mange that was treatable but incurable, a netherworld that I have since come to know well. Rather incredibly, Annie lived to be more than ten. Please do not buy a dog from a pet store. She taught me a great deal about how to suffer and treating her scabs, the smell of rotted flesh and the blood matted in the hair, taught me more, which despite my youth I realized at the time. Annie did not die until I was in college, 19, I think, and I still feel badly about her last years. My mother told me the dog cried piteously for days, and as a family, we don't really set much stock by physical pain. But my parents were about to break and have her put down when she died, which my mother called a gift, sparing the killing. 
I was gone, wrong somehow, it still feels. One must struggle to be sensitive but not modeling. Annie also had much joy and was deeply loved all her life. So, so judging from the age of my brother, we must have been swimming in Smith Lake when I was 10, maybe older. I just thought of those things, sitting here in a darkened airplane. That is what it means to come back. Where there is this, from a text conversation I had with Kathleen, while I was actually at Smith Lake. She's a very old friend and the eldest child of our family friends, the Terry's. Is that where we went with you when we were kids? Many memories of that trip. Boating and seeing beaver for the first time. Taking a boat to a restaurant. Fishing and putting the fish in the bathtub. A huge thunderstorm and you, Craig, Marie, and I hiding under covers and all holding each other, picking blackberries and Craig finding the only blueberry, huckleberry, bush, and Mama Tiny teaching me to make honey butter. Geez, I hadn't thought of those memories in decades and it all came rushing back. Our childhood was fantastic. Miss you. Kat has it right, and her memory is probably better than mine. And yet, while I remember much the same, our memories also differ. For example, I think maybe I remember the storm. What does that mean, maybe I remember? But not being in bed with two girls, not to mention my little brother. I remember seeing beavers many times, but not with the Terrys. Another memory of their visit that Kat does not mention sh sharply comes to mind. There was some sort of hike up a hill, which seemed steep at the time. I ran back, shirtless. The telling causes me to recall that I was usually shirtless in the summer, and so to remember my boy's body, and it is baffling somehow. How could that have become this? Aging often comes with an odd sense of surprise. Running down the hill, I got a cut on my chest from a briar, perhaps blackberry. It was nothing, but Louise, Kat's mother, complimented me on my toughness and said she wished her girls wouldn't make a big deal of such things, and so forth. Much. Most of that is gone, of course, along with childhood. But perhaps not everything is gone, or not gone entirely. I've long been mildly curious about the objective aspects of such memories, the houses, the places where we pick blackberries, and the lake itself, for examples, and how they relate to both the passage of time and to our own perceptions and memories, and ultimately consciousness and even personalities. Had I remembered correctly? Had those things changed? Were those things still there at all? Would I... What had I never known, and so could not have remembered at all? Which of my memories were actually memories, not something I had imagined, or been told, or even dreamed? And how do such things, less than certain, combine to form our sense of our lives and who we are? I began with fog. It is strange to think one can remember fog, which is the symbol of all that is incompletely obscured. That is to say, half-hidden, seen but badly, or at least suggested, clouding the mind much as it swaths the surface, and swirling, too, so that what might have been seen just now only a moment later appears differently, casting doubt. And yet I remember fog in my childhood, as perhaps all children do, one way or another, if Freud has it right, and in this regard he does. But I remember fog not only or even usually as a consciousness of relations obscured, but as weather, like snow or south winds or any of the other ostentatiously natural phenomena, that would become more mysterious to me with passing decades. That sense of mystery is one of the things this text aims to suggest. There is an old saw about understanding the Bible. Everything is absolutely true, and some of it actually happened. The problem here is almost the reverse. Everything happened, but none of it is true, or not true enough. We are compelled to art because we cannot write truth. Did I go to the funeral? Whose? Either way, fundamentalism is unavailable. Even if we might, from an old photograph perhaps, 
determine the attendance of a boy bearing my name and indeed my DNA, in what sense would that be I? And so, yes, dear relatives, I will have gotten much wrong, and I look forward to being corrected. But the point of this text is not what actually happened, though it is all too human to want to set the record straight. The truth does matter, after all, well, at least sometimes. But I have no desire to check archives, to corroborate stories, to consider opposing perspectives. This book is not really about Smith Lake or Jasper or even our family as such. If this book were about such things, I might have written it long ago. Or, to put it differently, were I a better writer and had more time, if I could fly, I could have invented different characters in a different setting to talk about the same problems. Call me lazy. Writing from memory rather than pure invention does provide a personal pleasure, sort of like a family album or a scrapbook, but that's sentimentality and it takes more than that to get me through a draft. So let me try to give you some facts, by which I mean facts in lieu of fiction, what pass for facts in my head as I write. There will be more later, equally ambiguous, several no doubt wrong. The lake house was green and flat. There was a big back porch, a flagged patio, and a great stone fireplace. A small kitchen, a bathroom in formica in a sort of pale beige putty color, maybe flecked. Sudden flashback of my mother telling me clinical names for male and female anatomy. In the bathroom, or somewhere else, there was a small picture of a boy geared up for fishing, waiting by his sleeping father. Out the window, with a view over an inlet or maybe a river, morning is breaking. The father is stubbly, wearing a white undershirt, and would have had a cigarette dangling from his mouth if he weren't sleeping. The entire picture is sort of greenish, Norman Rockwell with an edge, which still seems about perfect. I remember guns over the mantel, three unless it was two, shotguns for quail and skeet, but there may have been a rifle, and talk about how dangerously far a rifle bullet can travel if the target is missed. There was certainly talk of quail hunts, although I don't remember anybody actually hunting the little birds that were all over the countryside and that flushed so fast with a disconcerting whirr whenever you walked across the long grass, startling, closer to scary than you wanted to admit, at least as a boy. There are bob whites who are a constant cry on sultry afternoons most days. The birds are delicious, but I didn't learn that for a fact until maybe 15 years later on a boozy evening in Boston in a restaurant with a Rococo ceiling. Could have been an old bank with friends and the woman who became my wife. In my lust and appreciation, I almost choked to death on one of the little bones. Nobody hunted deer to my knowledge, and maybe there was no rifle. The guns were, quote, always getting stolen, but I didn't know if that was really right either. Maybe the guns I remember were replacements and then were stolen, but I cannot see anybody repeatedly replacing expensive weapons. I do remember the adults shooting skeet in the driveway. The weird little launcher sending the clay frisbee sailing out into the firing range, the yard. Perhaps I remember a skeet exploding, or maybe that was later, in Texas, or maybe just film. I didn't handle any of the guns at all when I was really young. And then later they had been stolen, and this time at least not replaced. But maybe that's not why. At the time, my father, a Vietnam paratrooper and a company commander, was back from his first tour, on which he led the retaking of the Ashau Valley after the Tet Offensive. He may have shot some skeet on some occasion when I was around, but I don't remember any enthusiasm. Certainly no, son, you should learn this. So these guns aren't Chekhov's guns, and maybe they do not matter at all, and should not have been mentioned. But that is one of the differences between life, even dreams, and fiction. Fiction is better organized. It's life, however, with which we must contend, from which we must fashion, if not neat narratives, at least stances and sensibilities.
The idea of sensibility brings me back to what this book is not, or at least not intended to be, and why I did not have to return to Smith Lake for so many years. Writers often mind memories of their childhood for the experiences, characters, relations, stories that once made up lives, but in a good author's hands can be transformed into art. I've already alluded to Thomas Wolfe, Faulkner, Proust, and think of any number of Jewish novels or... But I don't think that's just what I'm doing here, at least not mostly. I did mind my childhood once, as a very young man, in order to produce a novel. That book was never published. You needed to write this so you could write other things, I was told. Perhaps I should return to my youthful effort, though I suspect both text and effort would be unbearable. Maybe the Lord will be merciful and arrange oblivion for the various fragments and copies scattered about. Be that as it may, I believe what I'm trying to do here is different. I'm trying to use some mysterious fragments of my childhood to talk about some aspects of middle age, notably the effort to hold personalities together. Dear Lord, give me strength. In the present twilight, when facts are as free as the air at the edge of meaningless. When thinking about making this trip, I found Smith Lake on a map on my computer near Jasper. The map was all one could ask. Easily navigable, precise down to the level of small lanes, and with spooky pictures available at a click. But I had no idea where on the lake our house had been, or how to drive to it. Nor did I know how to find my great-grandmother's houses in Jasper. My facts were unconnected to my meanings. So I asked Chuck, my first cousin once removed, genealogy. Chuck's father, Charles, and granddaddy, my paternal grandfather, Clarence, were brothers, along with Emmett, who lived with Mother Westbrook, Clyde, the school principal, and Clifton. The Westbrook brothers are all gone. Chuck and his wife, Shirley, however, live in Houston now. When Chuck found out from my father, his first cousin, that we were traveling to MD Anderson in Houston, he called. Chuck's parents, Charles and Hazel, retired on Smith Lake and had a house not far from ours, so Chuck was able to give me direction, indeed directions. That is, he made the facts mean something to me. I promised to visit the old homestead and report back things that perhaps meant something to him. Facts may be free nowadays, but meaning is as precious as it ever was. Although I claim to be using memories in order to talk about epistemology in the era of cheap facts, a rather philosophical project, I cannot honestly deny the artistic impulse entirely. Indeed, I've suggested art is unavoidable, but even wanting to say, this is not art, might seem strange. What am I worried about, you ask? Egotism. Consider, this reverie is founded on my memories. You may think Smith Lake is no more than an exercise in nostalgia, egotism, vanity, and selfishness, understood along a continuum from modestly bad to worse. I'm entitled to a degree of such sins like anybody else, but still, it's a problem. Why is Westbrook talking about fragments of his early childhood? Who cares? And if this is true, why should you believe him, since everybody knows artists lie? To which one answer is to say, what about Saul Bellow or Mark Twain or Thomas Mann or any number of great artists that mine their childhood? To which a crushing response is to say, but you are not. An even more crushing response is to say, who cares about books? We will return to this fear. A friend once excused me by saying that all writers are selfish. Perhaps, and that was a kindness, and I wish it were that easy. At some point, however, you have done and get back to work. Embrace selfishness and maybe your other sins, or you do not and cease writing. There is intense anxiety here. Iggy Pop, sage in old age. It's got to be fucking good. This is what you sacrificed a lot of things for, dude. 
And this is what you were doing when you weren't always there for other people. So it better be good. Suppose it is not good. Or suppose you were there for other people, for which we love our mothers and do not require art. For now, I'm still writing. If you're still reading, I'm touched. That sounds sarcastic, but it's not so intended. Since I was a small child, I wanted to be a writer. In grade school, I even took a season off from soccer, but didn't have the discipline to do anything. At some point, it became clear that I was already a writer, and it was not as wonderful as I boyishly had imagined. Writing was always hard, and getting better at it did not make it easier, just the opposite, in fact. The bar went up, and the failings became more obvious. Loss of nerves ceased to be an idea and became a real danger. Not to be melodramatic here, but the endless stories of alcoholism, drug abuse, petty misbehavior, sexual and personal depravity, and even suicide became easier to understand. To lighten up, managing these hidden depths was all rather too much of a bother, as Bertie Wooster might say. One of the lesser burdens of being a writer is a pained relationship with language, a hypersensitivity to the way meanings shift and slip and reconstitute themselves among the words, indeed the pace and the breathing. Memory is bad enough, and then it turns out to be so difficult to express in present words something roughly equivalent to what is at best half-remembered, often visually, in the past. Rather than lapse into an awkward silence, I've tried harder to write, which means craft, art in the old sense of technique. Which in turn means that in the text thus far, although I have denied that I am mining my childhood for artistic effect, I have also told gothic tales en passant, small boys killed by bait sticks, made ostensibly casual references to suicide writers and dying dogs, and the like. I'll do such things again before we are done. Indeed, part of the interest this text holds for me is formal. This reverie is also an exercise of skill, a kind of test. So yes, there will be art with all that entails including lies of a sort, though I'm trying to be honest. Plato wasn't wrong, but he also wrote theatrically. And so I am forced to admit, in a text that bases itself upon a lake that exists, in this form, only in my memory, that a degree of nostalgia and by extension vanity is inescapable. But I deny that art's egotistic extensions, nostalgia, vanity, selfishness, are the central point. I plead to the misdemeanor charges only. I've waited too long and given too much away for this to be merely selfish. Maybe I should not protest so much, not be so worried about being labeled an egoist. Isn't that sort of weakness on my part, too much concern for my reputation? And concede that at the bottom of Smith Lake is the desire to make an artistic statement, albeit of a strange sort. While the text addresses philosophical and even existential concerns, such concerns hardly disqualify a text from being considered art or we lose Dostoevsky and Dralia. Shirley Camus and Plato himself teach that philosophy can be conducted by other means. And insofar as anybody cares about my intentions, I want to make something meaningful or at least pretty. But even if it might be considered an artistic effort, Smith Lake is not fiction. The text comprises fragmentary truths, not outright inventions, to the extent outright inventions are even possible. More importantly, this text does not have the defined characters, the plot, and general coherent organization we expect from fiction. This text is open-ended, gesturing towards the forgotten, the suspected, and the intensely personal and so hard to know, rather than self-contained, available to the reader, as fiction generally should be. Those guns are not Chekhov's guns, just hazy memories. What organization it does have, apart from the narrative of the road trip itself, is lyrical. Rather than fiction, Smith Lake is a reverie, 
an intensely self-conscious reflection on a magazine of fragments, many scattered, loosely organized by chronologies of life, thought, and physical travel. Whether a reverie should be considered art, much less philosophy or even therapy, is difficult to say. The table talk would be interesting, even if the answers probably do not matter. An important editor, if not mine, wonders why I apologize for this text. Go for it, she sensibly says. Easy enough for her to say. She's not writing, and she's publishing books valuable for tenure and other professional reasons, regardless of if and how they are read. The thing that we call a book can be used to level furniture, support a hot coffee cup, can be an award or a decorative object, need not be read. Indeed, the legibility of the book itself is in question, maybe coming to an end, or at least becoming less than it once was. It's not so clear books are worthwhile anymore, at least not for many people. So why write, and for whom? Addressing those questions seems to me to entail sense of write how, which in turn occasions philosophical engagement with this thing, the book, that has so long dominated so much of intellectual life. And here again, the questions are interesting, if perhaps a little sad. Turning from the general idea of the book to this particular author, me, this project is not only a way to say some things about the human condition as it has manifested itself at this historical juncture, but also an apology for myself under these circumstances, which on dark days seem to comprise the twilight of not only the book, but also the automobile and even the republic. For my person, I like to think it is only late afternoon, but I've bitterly learned that one never knows. It is certainly late enough in my day for the question of what to write to have become existential, constitutive, more than a little desperate. What sort of man had these efforts at writing, and indeed living, just as successful as they have been but no more, made me? What have I got to give? Reckoning. And if you do not have time, I quite understand. No worries. Again, that was Point of Departure, Chapter 1 of the probably unpublishable book, Smith Lake. Music has been provided by Vince Parlato. I am David A. Westbrook, and this has been Intermittent Signal. I hope you listen next time. I hope there is a next time. Until then, be well.